Hello, everyone. I'm Philip Mead. And I'm Scott Stigmeyer. And I'm Danny Webb. And this is The Blackest Eyes, a place for intelligent conversation about horror movies. This is episode four of season one. And in this first season, we are watching and discussing movies related to exorcisms. So far, we've discussed William Friedkin's The Exorcist, the all-time classic. We looked at The Exorcist 3. Uh, we reviewed a very good South Korean film called The Priests. And today we're going to consider an American film produced by Sam Raimi, directed by Ole Borendahl, called The Possession. So be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter for all the relevant and updates and all the recent news. And of course, subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcast catcher. So, prepare to enter the world of Jewish demonic folklore with The Possession. Here we go. Right, guys this was a fun film a little bit different take than what we've done so far on this first season so let's begin with a plot synopsis and get rolling with some discussion here danny i think you're up brother so tell us what the movie was about okay uh the possession is about a college basketball coach named clyde played i think pretty well by uh, jeffrey dean morgan of walking dead fame he is a divorced dad of two daughters and uh has custody of the daughters on, on weekends. So, uh, during the week they live with their mother, Stephanie played by Kira Sedgwick, uh, who unlike her husband has moved on into a, a new relationship. Uh, Clyde is married to his job. As they say, he is a college basketball coach. We, we learned during the course of the movie that he's very good at his job and has a chance to move up to division one, uh, at some college in North Carolina, I think maybe suggesting that it was University of North Carolina. So he's at the top of his game. Uh, while uh, during the near the beginning of the movie, he has bought a new home. He introduces his daughters to the new home, and they go by a yard sale at a house that we we saw in a teaser at the pre-credit sequence, where a woman had this uh, box with all these uh, strange symbols on them. And there's a sort of a poltergeist-like scene where some force from the box throws her around the room and she ends up uh, nearly dead from it. They're having a yard sale to raise money for her medical expenses. Uh, that's what her son suggests. And they're buying some plates and some stuff to equip the new house. And she sees the box. And the daughter, M sees the box and purchases it and uh, takes it home which of course begins uh, so this, that already is a little bit different than the films we've seen because this is a film that begins with a, a, a possessed object and there's elements of that that make the film kind of interesting but anyway um, as you might expect have if you haven't seen the movie things begin to go bad uh, m begins to act strangely we've learned that she's a real activist for uh, 
she's she's a vegetarian and she's an activist for not eating meat and that's one of the things we first see about her she starts becoming ravenous and eventually we see her with a just a pork chop or a steak raw in her mouth at one point but she you know she begins to behave strangely I forgot to say she got the box open and when she got the box open it had some weird stuff in it including a a severed human tooth, a, sever, a human tooth, uh, a some dead bugs, a lead container that opened that had a bunch of stuff inside of it. Just some, it's a, a mirror that is kind of the warped. It's like an ancient mirror that doesn't reflect perfectly, so it almost looks like a funhouse mirror when you're reflected in it. Um, eventually, M becomes violent and the father Clyde tries to throw the box away and that begins this escalation of, uh, of supernatural behavior. The house is filled with bugs. M's able to throw people around. She has a violent sequence at one point where she uh, breaks glass all over the floor. So her barefoot mom has to walk through it. And um, Clyde, while he is estranged from the family after he's accused of abusing M, does some research and discovers that the box potentially housed a demon and that this is a box in Jewish mysticism that is used to trap and, and hold demons. Um, and we later learn the specific demon, but uh, Clyde goes and it, but then it follows a very traditional exorcism pattern, except instead of being a, a Catholic priest, he goes to a place, uh, a, a temple visits a, uh, some uh, some Hasidic Jews and the the elder basically says there's nothing we can do. It, it, it's a frightening thing. He brings the box in, shows it, and everybody basically scatters. And the the elder's son says it's his you know it's it's his duty to to help. And we go through a exorcism uh, from the Jewish. Uh, perspective rather than you know, the Catholic perspective, which is different. Um, eventually, they are able to drive the spirit from the little girl. There's some similarities with the end of The Exorcist. Um, and that, I think that's it. Did I leave anything out, guys? Yep. No, nope, sounds good. Yeah, good job. So let's just talk about uh, overall uh, how we felt about the film, if we enjoyed it, how strong the performances were, and so forth. Scott, we'll start with you. You had seen it first. Danny and I uh, watched it just a couple of days ago, so you are already kind of recommending the movie, which means you must have liked it somewhat. But give us your take on the possession. Yeah, I I like the movie. It's it's maybe not the. I mean, there, there's some things that are kind of formulaic but there are some i think some really interesting new elements to it too so yeah i like the movie i wouldn't say it's a five star but i'd give it a solid three and three quarters or something like that the performances were overall good i thought the main child actress uh who the the daughter emily who becomes possessed i think she was really really excellent and and the others as well so, yeah, I, I give it a thumbs up. I liked the uh, Hasidic element and particularly the actor who is Matsus Yahu, who's also a sort of reggae artist, but also a, an Orthodox Jew. So I thought that connection was kind of cool, too. But yeah, overall, I, I liked it. 
I liked it too. I thought the performances were all very, very good. As a matter of fact, there wasn't a single actor or actress that I thought was weak in the film. I thought everybody did very well. Both children were very good. The adults were good. Even the boyfriend who comes in, uh, I thought, did just fine. So that was all great. We'll get into some of the specifics about the distinctions between the Jewish perspective and the Christian perspective and some of the scares and whatnot. But overall, a great take on uh, an exorcism, supernatural movie. One of the things that's interesting about this film, Dan, you alluded to this in your plot synopsis, uh, but my son, who is too young to watch horror movies, way too young, he's 10 years old. Well, I shouldn't say way. I think we were probably all watching horror movies by 11 or 12, right? But he always wants to know what was the person doing when they got possessed. For some reason, he knows we've been watching possession movies and exorcism movies, and he's always been curious to know what happened to the person when they were possessed. And I've never really been able to give him an answer because we've come into the movie with possession kind of already taking place. I said, I don't know, but they're just possessed and something had to happen. Well, in this movie, sure enough, he asked me today, do you know what the girl was doing uh, when... And he's picked up on the fact it seems like it's always young girls, right? And so he said, do you know what he's... And I said, yes! Now I can actually tell you what the girl was doing because it sets it up. There's a, there's a story that leads us to the actual possession. And that's one thing I really enjoyed about the movie was seeing that progress. It's kind of like with superhero films. I love origin stories, seeing how Superman gets bit by the... Or Spider-Man gets bit by the spider and the, and the whole thing. I love that kind of stuff. So that really added uh, to the movie to me that we were able to watch the progression... Uh, of M throughout the story becoming deeper and deeper and deeper into uh, the, the, the stranglehold that the demon has on her. I thought that was very effective. Danny, your take on the film. Oh, I enjoyed it. I'm probably maybe just slightly below uh, Scott or right around where he's at. You know, I really enjoyed the uniqueness of it um, to get the this Jewish perspective rather than a Catholic perspective was interesting. I thought the performances were great. I really liked the smarmy Dennis boyfriend uh, who could not have been better named. He's, well, I guess he slightly could have been a Brent. He's a Brett though. That's pretty good. And uh, he just, he was unlockable from the start for me. Uh, but anyway, I liked everything about it. Uh, I really thought the, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, Scott, what's the, uh, the actor's name? Um, it's, I think, Matos Yahoo. That's how it's Yeah, Matos Yahoo. Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, and uh, I thought he did a wonderful job. I think uh, we, we've been talking about how these films are, are so far have been uh, marketing for the Catholic Church. And it comes, and I think uh, I think the Jewish faith comes off well in this one. This is another one that's respectful of the faith, though the fact that so many people at the temple turned away from him Right, it makes it, it it softens it a little bit, but uh, but what is his name? Uh, Zadok. Uh, yes, in, in the it, film, it's, it's yeah, Zadok. Yeah, he's yeah. he's a very uh, very likable character. Yeah, you could take two positions on that, right? It seems like most of the elders kind of abandoned the poor guy, and um, you get the the feeling that uh, Zadok was maybe not not a rebel, but willing to. Uh, look outside the box, pardon the pun. Right, but and, the Jewish faith does get the job done still. So in the end, it it's still, uh, you know, I think it's still positive. Now, so many horror films are so nihilistic and, and anti-religion. It's really weird that we've just 
you know, one film after another in this series, it's all very, it's been a pretty positive take on religion. There are three moments of disbelief in the film for me. I wanted to mention these to you and see if you picked up on them or maybe there's some for you. But as these scenes happened and then the aftermath of the scenes, I was thinking that doesn't seem to, they didn't tie that together very well or show uh, cause or reason or whatnot. Uh, the first is when M, maybe I missaw this. Maybe I should have rewind, you know, did, did the rewind thing and go look at it again. But at one point at the dinner table, when Emily was um, progressing down the road to possession, she has a moment and she turns and she stabs her dad's hand with a fork. Did I watch that right? That's yes. exactly what happened. Yeah, and so he obviously uh, recoils back and stands up and kind of freaks out. And But that's really it. I, You know, there was no, like what the heck just happened? He doesn't even mention it to his wife, presumably. It never comes up. We never revisit that again. I mean, isn't that a pretty long sit down? Uh, baby, you just stabbed me. You know, what in the heck's going on? I found that to be uh, really weird. Did that sit yeah. weird with either of you guys? It, it really did. I, I expected that to come up again immediately in the next scene, and it did not. So it was just kind of throwing. That might have ended up on the cutting room floor or something. Yeah, and then second is when Emily was at the refrigerator, something you mentioned in your synopsis, and she's making all of these bizarro sounds. There's the sounds of glass and breaking and things being scooted around, and she's making weird noises. It sounds like possession noises. And the mom obviously hears it, and there's no way that she could ignore it. And yet it takes her about 25 minutes to get to the kitchen to see what's going on. For some reason, that drove me crazy. If that's my daughter, and she she keeps saying Emily, so she knows that something's going on with Emily, you run in there. I mean, you you don't you don't take twenty minutes to get to the kitchen. So that that was just, I guess, as a parent, that just kind of bugged me a little bit. And then the third thing for me was the exorcism in the hospital was so loud. I mean, were they just in a, uh, a totally excluded place where there's no people? They were able to carry her out of her hospital room. No nurses saw her, no nothing. I thought that was not really believable in, uh, in a lot of ways. But yeah, that, those were that, three. Go ahead. That's the one I noted of the, of the, I didn't mention anything in my notes about the, anything else. But yeah, the, that was ridiculously, I mean, they were, it was loud. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, they do try to explain that. Okay. So, you know, when they're going down the elevator. Right. I, we know where the physical therapy room is and it's not, yeah. it's empty right now. Or something. Yeah. yeah. He said, yeah. Cause he's a, a basketball coach and he said, some of my players go down to this physical therapy room um, and it's not used after six. So the explanation. Yeah, of course. I mean, in, uh, often in horror movies, didn't you ever notice this with other horror movies where it's set in a hospital that there's like no one there. If you've ever actually been in a hospital, even at night, there's noises, there's people, nurses uh, going up and down the halls. But in a lot of horror movies where there's, you know, when it's when there's a hospital setting, it just seems like it's almost deserted except for the the one, you know, one or two main characters. Well, anyway, so, yeah, that was good observation. Yeah, well, I think the movie in a lot of ways is is very believable. I think it takes a lot of important themes uh, of human life. We're told we're dealing with the divorce here. Did you mention that? I did. Okay. Yeah. So we're dealing with separation and the the results of that. And I thought they dealt with a lot of those things very, very well. And the possession even itself could be a pointing. We can talk about that in a little bit. 
Uh, so there were just a couple of moments, though, where the film seemed to step away from that, and, and there were some moments of disbelief there, it seemed to me. Let's talk about the, the faith element here for just a second. I found the movie to be actually uh, fairly well-researched because it correctly ties the Dybbuk box, which is the box that holds the demon, to the branch of Judaism known as Hasidism. So Hasidic Jews are very, very conservative, very orthodox, similar to what would be known as fundamentalism within Christianity. And so it isn't surprising that this is the group who's willing to believe and be extremely concerned about a demonic presence in this box, whereas Reform Judaism would be more skeptical, right, of a supernatural presence as they read the Torah and the Holy Scriptures and the traditions through a much different lens. They presuppose very different things than Orthodox Jews and especially Hasidic Jews. So when he goes to the professor to get a little bit of explanation about the box, I thought that was a very effective scene. The professor was a little bizarre. He seemed to be just kind of laughing his way through it. Uh, clearly, he probably did not believe in the folklore and the traditions, but I thought it was well done. You know, the, the research was there and uh, provided a ground to them, him visiting the community um, in Brooklyn, I guess it was, in order to seek help. So I found all that to be compelling. Any thoughts on those scenes, uh, the the research that was provided there. I think the uh, the the actual demon that, that they uh, they unearthed in order, you know, the, the, for the film was. I, I had no, I was not familiar with this the story, but what a uh, what a brutal demon responsible for the miscarriages of women and the eater of children. Like if, if you're going to possess someone in a horror movie with a demon, that's a pretty good one. Yeah. I, I there were a lot of elements, the whole faith element that I thought was interesting. Um, yes, it is respectful of, of belief and um, in, you know, particularly Ju Hasidic Judaism because they are kind of a, unless you live near them, they're, they're, they're probably, you know, a lot of their habits and a lot of their practices and customs might look kind of foreign or alien to a lot of mid, uh, sort of other Americans. So if um, so, I thought that, you know, it, it was respectful. I thought Modest Yahoo, who's primarily a musician. I don't know if he's done any other acting, but I thought he did a very respectable job. I liked that his name was Sadak, which is um, righteous. OK, so as Hebrew for righteous. So there were a lot of elements like that that I thought were were kind of cool from the faith perspective. Yeah, you know, when he, when he comes to the Hasidic community and that first shot, you see all of the Jewish people walking around, you know, wearing their appropriate clothing. It feels like when you walk into, uh, in Kentucky, when you come into an Amish community and you know that you're immediately immersed into a group of people who have a different outlook on life and yet there's something to be there's a respect that is connected to folks who have such a a passionate view and a passionate set of beliefs that they're willing to in, in, in a way push against culture and establish their own beliefs and their own way of life based on the holy scriptures and so even the setup shot uh, I thought we could resonate with because all of us have had those experiences when we've come into uh, a community or just around people that clearly believe different based on their even just their appearance. And I thought that was a very effective scene. 
So the exorcism itself, the end of the movie, talk to me about that a little bit. I've got some thoughts on this. Daniel, let's start with you. You know, it's in the hospital. It takes place in a, a couple of different sequences. Uh, first, of course, it's in Emily. The demon comes out of Emily and goes into Clyde, and then the exorcism continues so that it ultimately comes out of Clyde and back into the box. What would your take on it? And specifically, I'd like for us to talk about how it compares. Uh, was it equally effective, more effective, less effective than the exorcisms we have seen you know, thus far in the films that we've reviewed? What do you think? Well, first of all, it was, it, it's, it was very similar. Like, as you said, you've got a demon inside a girl. The demon eventually comes out, goes into someone else. Uh, it was paced a lot quicker than, uh, than we saw in the exorcist and and i think the quicker pacing really took a lot of the fear factor out for me it almost came off as an action sequence especially with the m kind of flipping around like a uh, like a superhero at, at points and you know dropping from the ceiling and stuff it, it, it had some jump scares that were pretty effective but uh I, I didn't find it to be as emotionally engaging as the ones from the exorcist or even, I think, from a priest. What do you think, Scott? Well, so you're asking what I thought about the exorcism scene in, in just sort of general? Yeah, I mean, comparing it to what we've seen so far in the movies mm. we reviewed. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I thought that it was interesting the way that... Because, you know, when you're every other movie we've watched, and probably most every other movie, it's, either, it's, it's usually a Catholic perspective. So they have a ritual. They have a set ritual that they don't deviate from much. And as far as I know, I don't know about Hasidic Judaism, but he was quoting Psalms. He was, he, he was doing other things too. He was commanding the demon, using the demon's name, which was said earlier that that was a key element to getting it back in the box. And then um, at Sadok, the, the, the guy who's doing the exorcism, um, you know, when they think it's over, they, M, M is done, she's free. And, but it, got, it went into dad, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Um, it's Sadok that knows, okay, there's something wrong. This isn't right. I don't know. I thought there were a lot of elements in it that, that kept my interest. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the things, I actually thought one of the scariest scenes for me, there were a few, but, but was at some point during the exorcism sequence, when M is running away and running down the hallway, and she hides in a morgue. And dad is hunting, he goes for her and he goes in there and there's all these dead bodies and there's like this red light, you know, on the wall and M is there and she's, she's like sighing or something. Then she repeats the same line, you know, something like you scared me, daddy, or something like that. She repeats it and then repeats it with the same exact tone of voice. It just sounded to me that kind of creeped me out and it being in a morgue also seemed pretty effective for me. Yeah, that is actually, well, that was really good. That was good, but it was coupled with something I didn't care for, which is an over-reliance on strobes. There was uh, this a is lot like, of yeah, yeah the, the, it reminds me, you know, when we go to Halloween Horror Nights every year, my brother and I, and we're going to some of the best haunted houses in the world, and then you sometimes go to local haunts, you're, you're able to see really quickly how often people will rely on a dark room with a strobe light, right? And, and it's still effective. It still works. It worked in this movie. But um, I want to see more, you know, so used it well, but I I wasn't really impressed with that. But I did think the voice, you really scared me, Daddy. We've talked about 
the female voice, especially in Exorcist 3, there's a really haunting scene during the confession scene with that kind of scary female voice. So I thought that was very good. But coming back to the exorcism itself, uh, I found it to be an action sequence as well. I thought it was primarily loud, a lot of a lot of moving of, of the camera, a lot of moving of the bodies, a lot of jarring, and the build-up didn't quite work for me. You're right, Scott, the name was a significant part of the exorcism, a baizu, I think, taker of children. That's what they said the name of the demon was. And at one point, that's all he's, he's just screaming it over and over and over, I think in order to identify where the demon is now. And that's when it had gone into the father. And uh, so it, it wasn't quite as effective for me from that perspective. I prefer a little bit more of the, uh, of the different elements. You know, in the priest, we had Bach music. Uh, we had salt poured around the thing. There's lines of demarcation. There are different elements that we have to pursue in order to uh, achieve the desired result. And this one seemed a lot like standing around screaming, uh, waiting for something to happen. So it didn't connect with me quite as well. Uh, in that regard. I will say this, though. Go ahead, please. I just say one thing that's missing there that might be a big part of that is the, the demon getting inside the exorcist head. We don't have that you know, personal attack that is... Hmm. Uh, I don't know if there's any of it. All. Throughout the movie, there is. You know, she you know, manipulates the, the, the father to make it look like he was abusive and... Uh, some of that stuff, but during the exorcism itself, there, I don't know, there didn't feel like there was any emotional threat. It was all just a physical thing. At one point when the dad is pretty convinced something supernatural is happening, uh, this is just relevant to me because of the contemporary circumstance we're in with COVID-19. Um, he comes into her bedroom and he sits down with a copy of the scriptures and he begins reading. And do you remember what he reads? Did you either? Did you either, either of you pick up on this? Um, was it Psalm ninety one? Psalm ninety one, which right now there's no reason. Maybe if you're not a pastor, maybe you wouldn't know this. Psalm ninety one is by far right now uh, the most read, the most quoted, the most embraced psalm in the Bible right now because it's traditionally known as a psalm where God protects us not only from evil but also from um, pestilence from plague, which as you can imagine during COVID-19 has been important. So in central Kentucky here, there are yard signs uh, in so many different yards, just, uh, down farm roads and, and back roads. Just people are putting signs in front of the yards that just simply says Psalm 91. Wow. There's no other reference. It's, it's kind of like John 3.16 on the golf, you know, in the in the gallery when people used to hold up signs that say John 3.16. It just says Psalm 91. So when he started reading that, I was like, wow, what an amazing contemporary connection to the issues that we are involved in right now. Uh, so I just found that to be interesting. And it worked because the, the demon slung the scriptures out of his hand and it hit the wall, right? And, um, okay, uh, the movie, I think even if unintentionally, paints a fairly appropriate picture, I think, of what can happen to families, especially children, uh, during a divorce and the aftermath of a divorce. So we have two different approaches here from the children. Hannah's approach is you just have to train yourself not to care and just get on with your life. And in her, pers in, in her case, it was dancing. You're just going to dance it away, you know? I mean, just, you just can't care. 
and just dance, you know. But Emily is more in tune, it seems, with the pain of the breakup and, and the, rec the, the reality of relationships that are being torn apart, memories that are no longer going to be reintroduced in their life, Mem you know, uh, traditions that aren't going to be happening, and so forth. And that in turn, now this, this is my take on this here, so tell me what you think. I think Emily's being more in tune with the pain of the relationship, the, the desire for her and her, her, her mom and her dad to remain closely connected, to be still intimate with one another. It seems that that in turn makes her susceptible to becoming preoccupied and uh, protective and even jealous of the box. Now, we know that that's, of course, under the influence of the demon, and the presence. I think there's like a three-stage thing. The last stage is it actually uh, possesses the host. But it seems like she is poised because of her personality and the, and the way that she is handling divorce. She is poised to be more susceptible to that influence than Hannah would have been, who may have just discarded the box and said, this has absolutely nothing. You know, I'm, just, I'm getting back to my dancing and my carefree attitude and whatnot. And isn't that kind of a picture, if you will, of uh, the way things can influence. We, we take our personality types, the things that we are already bent toward, the way our hearts are already uh, geared toward certain situations, and then those can be manipulated. So sometimes our greatest strengths, because I would say that's a strength of Emily, uh, can be then used against us in ways that can be harmful as well. Your all thoughts on that, either one of you? So I thought that um, for some, so Emily I think is the younger, right? I mean, she's, she's the younger sister, yes. there's the yes. two. Um, Emily seems to be more sensitive. She seems to be, I got the impression, I don't know why exactly, but kind of an artistic spirit. I, I, I know that Hannah was into like competitive dance, but, but you know, when they go to the yard sale, it's, it's Emily that's putting on the dress up, you know, the, all the clothes and kind of dressing. I, I just got sort of a feeling that she was just sort of the sensitive kid. Um, so yeah, I, I think that might lend itself well to being maybe a little more susceptible to, from a psychological perspective, to suggestion or from spiritual, um, oppression and beyond. So yeah, I, I kind of got that too. I think the divorce element is a big, is an important part of this because it can, it can affect children. Well, it affects everybody, right? I mean, it's 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 destructive, and um, but but children can be uh, particularly wounded when mom and dad, uh, you know, divorce or split up. So I don't know. I thought that that was you know in a way it was kind of a type or a, a, a metaphor for the um, alienation that happens in a divorce, and so anyway, I. I'm with you. I think that she was, because of that situation, might have been more susceptible. Yeah, at one point at the dinner table, um, she even implies that maybe they will, they will be eating again. Or mom would like breakfast, right? So she, maybe she could come and eat breakfast with us at his new house, to which Hannah says, that's never going to happen. They're, they're divorced. It's over. You know, just you got to get on with it. You see all those little hints along the way. Danny, think, any follow up on that? Yeah, yeah. I think part of part of that is the age difference. Em is adolescent, and the sister is a teenager. And you know, psychologically, one of the things that happens during the teen years is people grow more selfish. 
biologically, they know that they're soon going to be on their own. They're going to have to take care of themselves, and that turns their attention to themselves. So, you know, we 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 talk about teens as you know being self-centered and selfish, but a lot of that is a you know a protection mechanism of of, of growing older and you know, growing to adulthood. And I think that is a lot of the difference between those two characters. Simply, the teenager is more self-centered and has more of a sense of self, so she's less susceptible to to uh, you know to just wishes and hopes that 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 are actually probably hopeless though let's point out that this film actually ends with everything working out it's the happiest imaginable ending for a horror film what other exorcism film ends with everyone in better shape than it started well mm-hmm. except for obviously one character that we could talk about yeah well that's how i thought it was going to end i i, I it's what i thought was going to happen the priests actually ended perfect right i mean that, that was everything was looking good there we all agreed that probably father kim was going to get off of the arrest and everything but on this one uh the guy who saves the day i mean presumably he's dead right i mean he did not survive that car accident at the end of the film and the, would you all agree with that right yeah oh no he is definitely yeah, dead he's yeah, definitely yeah, dead right, right and the the box is is thrown from the car and it's whispering uh, I, you know, I, the Wikipedia said is it's the uh, Polish. I guess um, I would have guessed could have been Hebrew of some kind, but um, so it's yeah, it's a think the family is in great shape. So the yeah, absolutely, they're back together. No, the divorce is whatever. You know, they're getting married again, and the kids are back together in one house, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does leave you with. Well, the, the, the savior of the movie, the priest, is dead, and it appears that uh, the demon is off to wreak havoc again. So it's a little both-and, it seems, at the, at the end of this film. Right. Yeah, I think, yeah, I saw that too, Philip, did it um, in Wikipedia. They, they said that it was, it was Polish, that the box was whispering. And um, interestingly, if Wikipedia is correct, it isn't, didn't it say something like, the, it translated the whispering to "I will eat your heart" or something. It was yeah. actually pretty, pretty scary, pretty scary saying that only poles will catch. But I, that that rang true to me too because um, when when the when uh, Dad goes to Brooklyn to meet up with the Hasidic community, and Modest Yahu takes him, whose name is in the movie is Sadok, takes him to the elders and and so forth who are studying or praying in the synagogue and takes him to his father who which is implied as the sort of chief of the synagogue he's speaking german okay so i mean these are these are european immigrants um so the polish thing and some of the lore i don't know if you're wanting to get to this philip in a minute or later but some of the lore about the dybbuk box ties it to the holocaust ties it to europe and eastern europe yeah so i guess we should go ahead and mention the fact that the film, this film, The Possession, is, I think, loosely, by the director's own admission, very loosely, based on some true accounts of an actual box that was purchased, I think, on eBay. Now, I only read through the backstory one time, uh, and it was late at night, but am I saying this correctly? Wasn't the box purchased on eBay by a family, and then it kind of wreaked havoc at that point? Uh, I'm talking about the actual events. Is that what you guys read as well? That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's that there's always that the, the classic example of this, of course, is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. I mean, 
based on true events you know or this whatever the opening mo- shot before the opening montage of that movie it ca- causes you to be like oh my goodness uh, so you know it is a little terrifying i guess that the idea of this box actually exists out there and apparently it's gone through multiple families and has you know brought bad things uh, to every family that it's encountered however the pushback against that is when you get the box uh, in order for curiosity or you just want to see what's going to happen or whatnot you're a ghost chaser uh the 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 psychological explanation of this is now you're looking for bad things to happen okay so uh, before the episode started, Danny was telling us that his water pipe busted in his school and it was 178,000 degrees and everything was horrible. Well, if you had just got the Dybbuk box, guess what, Danny? You're thinking that that's the demon, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that's kind of the, 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 the count, the therapist explanation, if you will, as to the way the human mind interprets events based on contextually what's going on. In this case, there's a demon box and that must be what's happening. So the movie then takes it, yeah, connects it to... Now, I don't know, Scott, is the, is the actual backstory also... Does it also involve uh, a Holocaust victim and family? Well, is I okay? So I didn't, as I remember from reading some of the, uh, yeah, the backstory. They were saying that the box, whoever originally originally found the box, so it was found in like a maybe a yard sale. I actually think that's what happened. That's where it emerged. Okay, somebody bought it at a yard sale, and they and he was told that yeah, it it, it their grandmother or someone a relative who had survived the Holocaust brought it brought it to the states and so a guy bought it at a yard sale this is all supposed to be true somebody has put this forward as true stuff and he started having uh phenomena his hair came out there's a few other phenomena that he attributed to the box he tried to give a give it back and the family wouldn't take it back and so he sold it on ebay and then and then someone whoever bought it didn't you know felt it was cursed and sold it again and so that yeah there's a little bit of a who knows i mean you sell something on ebay and you say i've got a haunted object here you're gonna you're gonna create a story is that what this is yeah Yeah. pretty good chance or something like that but but in the in the origin story of the actual divic box that inspired this movie is that yes it came from eastern europe and the bearer of the box had survived the Holocaust. So, you know, some, some, some kind of connection. And again, in that way, it makes the movie stand apart because there is a very clear identifiable means and method to the possession. And I just, I found that to be kind of cool. I mean, did you guys like that? Did you like the fact that the box set up then the possession? Did that help in the storytelling, you think? I, I think so. I, I mean, I kind of like stories that have a cursed object. I, mm-hmm. I think there's that, that's interesting to me. Um, you know, that, that there's so in this in, inside the Dybbuk box are all these different articles. Um, there's a in this particular Dybbuk box, there's a human tooth. There's a dead moth. There's a few other strange things, including a ring. And it's when the girl wears the ring that that indicates that she's being um, first tormented and eventually possessed by the malevolent spirit inside the box. But yeah, I thought that whole element that it's trapped in there. They, Whoever had it trapped it inside the box, and that's what we need to do. It had been let out, and now we need to get it back in there. 
I think actually for me it's a little less scary, and I know we've all seen thousands of horror films, and none of them actually scare us really. Uh, but if it's just a random, you, there's no rhyme or reason to why someone is is possessed. That's more frightening to me than if you come across an object. It's kind of like serial killers who kill blue-eyed blondes aren't very frightening to me, but serial killers that pull random strangers off the side of the street into vans and kill them are more frightening. So for me, it's a little less scary. Well, often they'll have like, a, well, like in The Exorcist, there was the Ouija board. Certainly implied that that is the, the object the contact point, the conduit, at least that's how I took it, the conduit for uh, the girl she meets Captain Howdy. I thought this was real similar. I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of a copy, right? I mean, because, you know, the, the girl in The Exorcist was saying, oh, I have a friend and I'm talking to him. His name is Captain Howdy and I'm talking to him through this object. Um, you know, which everybody knows or, you know, in popular culture, we know what a Ouija board is and it's supposed to have some kind of a cultic thing. Yeah, I think we yeah. actually make that connection because of the exorcist. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, the difference in the possession is actually shows it happening, right? It shows the Slowly. box arriving. And yeah. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, right, right. The, the story behind it, whereas in the other films, yeah, we're sometimes told about something that points back. But it's still evil, so that I don't. there's still not a real clear explanation as to why the demon is doing what it's doing. Because I agree with you, Danny. One of the reasons I hate it with a passion, Rob Zombie's Halloween remake, is because he explains Michael Myers. Well, who wants that? That takes away the whole point of the film. Exactly. Uh, so Car Carpenter had it right, you know, just pure and simply evil, and Loomis knew that, and that was that. He just had to try to stop him. So uh, I do agree with you with that. You, all, you know what this movie reminded me of, though, with the box and the possessive nature of the box? And even though Emily knew it probably wasn't great, you know, not good things were happening, she still was drawn to it. It reminded me of the Kronos device. Remember that one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I thought there was a, a very similar. This isn't good, and yet I can't, for some reason I'm still drawn to it. it there's something about it that's compelling. And you could say that that is uh, the story of evil in general, that we're drawn toward the thing that we know in the long run is going to be destructive to us. Uh, that's the human experience. That's the conundrum of the human experience in many ways. What else about the film do you guys want to discuss? Well, I got a couple things. One, I would just mention that, like with The Exorcist, when we talk frequently with these exorcism movies, what does mom or dad do? Because it's always a kid, usually a girl. Um, they go to the doctor, of course. They go to medicine. They go to science. Science, you know, scientism. Science is going to solve our problems, and and that's often true. <laughs> but in this case, just like with the Exorcist, right? I mean, they take her to the doctor, and they put her in this machine and test. It's not as um, disturbing and drawn out as it is in the exorcist, but it's just, you know, kind of the same thing. They go in, they put her in an MRI and there's, I, you know, I thought the bit where they could see yeah. an image of the ghoul in the MRI overdid it. But anyway, yeah, I would it, like to kind of pretend that didn't exist. That was really cheesy. That was, that was bad. Yeah. yeah there yeah. had to be a way that mom and dad got on the same page. That yeah. was the way that it happened. It, but, it, it was, but, you know, still showing the impotence of medicine with regard to something that is a spiritual issue. You, you know. mentioned the medicine, and I mean, really, honestly, this film, you can kind of imagine the pitch meeting for this. 
you know, the guys in front of the studio, and he goes, all right, we redo The Exorcist, but wait for it. Jews. It, 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 is, it is very similar. You can, you can almost find parallels to every scene in The Exorcist in this movie. Yeah. Well, the dad says, take me, right? right. Because yeah. Father, Father Karras at that point. Right. Uh, which is interesting because it wasn't the rabbi saying that it was the father. So it was a little bit different take as a family member uh, saying it, but, but nevertheless, but yeah, you know, you, you have to, you, you walk away from the possession in some ways asking this question based on the MRI scene and the physical nature. And then you actually see the demon crawl kind of back into the box. The question is, well, is this demon spiritual or physical? Uh, we can maybe say that, uh, spiritual beings can take on physical form, right? If they're going to possess, for example, or if there's some other manifestation that they might, but they're spiritual beings. Demonic beings are spiritual beings, not physical beings. But in this case, it almost plays like it's the other way around. It's a physical being that has the ability to be invisible in some ways, which is why the uh, MRI shows its face because it's actually physical. Yeah, it's actually, there's, I mean, the M looks in the mirror and sees the fingers coming up. I thought that was really cool. Like, like the demon is trying to crawl out of her through her throat at yeah. the one point. Uh, so, yeah, the physicality of it is definitely different, and I think pretty cool. I even kind of like the, uh, the, the creation of the creature there. I thought it was pretty creepy looking. Yeah, I like, yeah, right. I mean, there were a few disturbing moments and usually had to do with the girl. The one I mentioned in the morgue with the red light. The other one was what you just said, Danny, with the when she's kind of gagging and she looks in the mirror and she shines a flashlight down her throat to see if she's choking on something. And, you you know, you catch this glimpse of fingers coming up her throat. Sounds stupid, but I actually got kind of creeped out by it. And then before that was the moths. When, um, you know, oft, again, this is another trope, right? I mean, insects, lots of insects, flies or whatever are associated with demons. And they go to her room, the girl, because there's moths, gross moths, big moths flying around the house, this new house. Dad sees that they're coming out from under the bedroom door, pushes it open. And there's like a million of them flying around. And M is just sitting there like in a yoga pose and just, in, you know, like all these moths crawling all over and that, that one for me, you know, there were several scenes like that, that that I thought were creepy and disturbing in a good horror movie way. So I was going to ask you guys, um, well, obviously we're talking about an exorcism, but with Jews. And I don't know, you know, I will admit, I don't know a lot about contemporary Judaism or... And well, I mean, I you know, ancient first century Judaism, I know more about because of my experience studying the New Testament. But... Um, the idea of exorcism, you mentioned this, Philip, earlier when you were talking about, you know, some, well, m probably most versions of Judaism today are, are less supernaturally inclined. But the Hasidic Jews are, are more, you know, open to that sort of thing. But when we read the New Testament, clearly Jews at the time of the New Testament believed in demon possession. I don't know if that characterizes Judaism throughout history you know, this idea of demon possession, but at least, and you don't see, I, to my knowledge, I can't think off the top of my head of it appearing in the Old Testament, but in the New, in the Gospels, it doesn't seem like it's something nobody's ever heard of when Jesus starts doing uh, exorcisms. So the whole, the whole concept of Judaism and its history and the, the role of demons or demon possession, 
I thought was intriguing. I don't know, Philip, if you had any observations. Well, what's interesting is when even you read the New Testament and you think about first century Judaism, even at that point, we have a significant number of branches of Judaism. You see this even in the New Testament. So the most obvious is the distinctions between Pharisaical Jews and Sadducees. Uh, there are significant differences of belief between Pharisees and Sadducees, the most obvious and the most famous being the Sadducees do not believe in physical bodily resurrection. So, and these are Jews. Uh, then you have groups known as the Essenes, which are, are more prone to be uh, nomadic and meditative Jews. Then you have a, a branch known as the Zealots, which were more prone to pick up arms and fight for uh, the reestablishment of Israel out of Roman occupation. And um, all of these ultimately are working from the Old Testament scriptures. So even in the first century, you have a variety of understandings of the way God is working in his creation with his children, what's spiritual, what's not spiritual, what's supernatural, what's not supernatural. When you look at the Old Testament, I know a couple of things come to mind. You think of something like the Witch of Endor, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, you think of the uh, summing of Samuel. So there, there's certainly the, the concept of the spiritual presence. Of course, we have Hades and the place where the dead go. Um, but it was interesting to me, Scott, that obviously uh, the cross... Um, again, my son was like, well, did they use a crucifix? I said, no, they didn't. I said, well, how, how can you do an exorcism without a crucifix? Well, uh, the name of Christ wasn't even uh, mentioned. Uh, the scriptures were read, uh, but it, it did provide such a fascinating take, I think, uh, on the exorcism itself and the approach uh, that I think today most, as you said, is correct. I think today contemporary Judaism uh, most would look at this movie and, and see it just as I was described on Wikipedia, which is folklore, um, which is a, a sense of a, a mystic take on uh, the spiritual world, which is more metaphorical for us. It, it stands in the place of something that we're trying to understand about the human experience and how to cope with life and whatnot. Uh, so I don't know if that's helpful, but that, that's my take on that. Well, yeah, and you know, so you're right. I mean, we're, we're thinking as theologians and and um the name of christ right as being the powerful name that would be invoked by any christian exorcism but i thought it was interesting that sadok at some point when he's beginning the um ritual or whatever his prayers are he uses the the hebrew word hashem which means the name and it is um, a replacement instead of saying the name of god because they don't want to take it in vain, a Hasidic Jew. So they kind of build a hedge around it and say the name instead of actually saying the name. So that's a reference to, to God, and but not Christ, right, obviously. And then, but the whole point of you got to know the demon's name. There's just kind of an interesting um, correlation there about using the holy name to, you know, identify and subjugate uh, this presence. The other question I had about the demon was, is it a demon? I don't know that much about Dybbuk's except for what I read on the internet. And it said, from what I got, is that it, it could either be a demon or it could be like a dislocated human spirit. So I, I wasn't sure. Are we talking about it? Did, did, what impression did you get? Is this a ghost or is it a fallen angel? And, or maybe you didn't notice. Well, but I mean... 
based on the way that they presented it physically, I would say a demon, right? I mean, you see him crawling across the thing there. That that did not appear to me to be uh, simply the manifestation of a previous human, you know, or a spirit. It, it came across to me as demonic. Um, I could I could process that, I get, but I, I did not walk away thinking, oh yeah, this this could have been a human. <laughs> uh, did you? Did you think that that was a possibility? Well, I, I mean, because I'd read this, right? And so I'm trying to think. Um, I wondered what the history of this being was, you know, I mean, there's obviously, there is a history because there's a history with the box and possessions. No, I don't know. I mean, I, I was curious. No, I, um, and when the, when it's speaking to the girl, it, it was speaking in Polish, you know, not, not, you know, whatever demons speak, you know, Mm -hmm. but anyway, it was, um, I don't know. I, yeah, I did have the question. The question did cross my mind. Well, the uh, the you know, Abizu that's supposed to be uh, oh, yeah. is traced back to uh, the Testament of Solomon, okay. which is an ancient text, uh, not seen as canonical by by any church as far as I know, but uh, supposedly written by Solomon, uh, and it details these demons specifically by name, and that one is the you know the eater of children, right. and, it, and it was supposed to be the demon that caused women to miscarry. So I, I think specifically it, we are supposed to think it's that demon. Yeah, you're right. Coming back I'd to the name, that. though. I'd forgotten that, yeah. Yeah, Baizu. Coming back to the name, though, you know, in, in speaking, of course, the the proper name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, but as you, as you mentioned... Um, Jews will not say that name because of a reverence and the holiness of the name. They had deny Jehovah is what we say uh, for that name. But what's interesting is in the New Testament. So from a Christian worldview, um, what does Christ do? He takes on that name for himself, right? So uh, ego I me, uh, Moses at the burning bush, who I am, who I am. Um, uh, the name of Yahweh, the ego I me, right? In the Septuagint, the, in the Old Testament, the burning bush. This is the name that Christ takes on to himself before Abraham was I am. That's, that's, that's declaring himself to be the one true Jehovah God. And so what's so beautiful, this is what Jews hate, right? But when he says the name, when he speaks that word, what, of course, what we could say is, well, he's, he's invoking the name of Christ. <laughs> and just and just really just totally be completely disrespectful to their whole faith uh, in that whole scene if you wanted to go that route. But from a Christian worldview, this is what we would understand, right? Is that uh, Yahweh is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son being Christ himself. So you can take that many different directions. I just wanted to add, you know, there is the, um, we're kind of going all over the map, but these are just random thoughts. One, finally, for me, um, that lovely, or that kind of maybe quirky passage from the book of Acts where there are, there is an episode, there is one scene that I can think of in the New Testament where a, a group of, of non-Christian Jews are trying to do an exorcism. And they're doing it in the name of Jesus. You know the text I'm talking about, Philip? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Acts 19, right? So they're, they're, they're trying to cast out demons in the, demon, in the name of Jesus. And the demon addresses them and says, mm-hmm. well, I've heard of Paul, and I, right. I, I know Jesus, but who are you? And then the Who demoniac, are you? <laughs> <laughs> then the demoniac beats them up, right. like seven of them. It was, it's a crazy story. But, but it is an interesting 
um, sort of corollary story to this, this group of non-Christian Jews who are saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, be gone. And the demon addresses them and then attacks them. Well, the 12 have an even similar experience. Uh, so Jesus, in the gospel, sends them out. And they're not able to exercise the demon, and they're they're just totally confused. And they come back to Jesus and say, "Well, what's the deal? You know, why why aren't we able to do this?" And uh, you remember Christ's response. He says, "Well, this kind can only be mastered by prayer." The implication being, uh, they were doing it in their name, and not truly in the name of Christ. Right. Uh, so, yeah, you can you can see that in various places uh, in the New Testament. But what's fascinating about this movie is you just never think, uh, whether right or wrong, you just never think of Judaism and exorcisms. You just don't. No, no, that, th right, those two right. words don't go together. And right. that made it very interesting to watch. Any other follow-ups? Danny, anything else you got? No, I think about covered everything I was thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we will yeah. we will wrap it up. You know, if you let's just ask this: Would you recommend it, Danny? Would you recommend this to a friend? Yeah, I think so. Uh, just for the unique nature of the story, um, the Jewish perspective kind of thing, and uh, it's all right. It's a solid little horror film. It's not great. It's uh, you know, it wouldn't be the top of the list of recommendations. And you would as well, I think, Scott. Yeah, I would. Um, yeah, I don't think it's you know. I don't think it's outstanding. I do think it's, I think it's decent. I think it's definitely, I was entertained. There were some moments that I thought were disturbing. I thought the performances were great. The, uh, you know, last thing, I just remembered one other disturbing scene for me. And that's when M confronts Brett, the boyfriend of her mother outside. And yeah. the demon kind of is trying to drive him away. Brett, is a dentist and of course teeth are kind of a thing in this movie but his teeth fall out and there's blood and and then he of course takes off he gets in the car and drives fast as fast away as he can but that that's was the end of really Brett. yeah that's the end of Brett. he's out of it but that i thought that was pretty horrible that she just stares at him the wind blows and then his teeth start falling out and there's blood and it was it was an effective spooky scene for me yeah, that was good. I thought the scene was pretty spooky in the garage as well. Yeah, she's just I thought it was going to happen then, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and back to the recommendation thing. I think if you're doing what we're doing and you're exploring movies about exorcism, then there's definitely value in watching this. I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, yeah. And now um, yeah, for a different take and uh, some different ideas. You know, I don't think it was on the air, but at one point one of you guys said, that you know how many different ways can you do exorcism movies right somebody's going to be possessed and there's going to be somebody there trying to excise the demon so how many how many different ways so this one takes a little bit different approach and so we can certainly appreciate that and respect what the filmmakers were attempting to do um you know sam raimi produced this movie uh let me just ask real quickly um danny can you see raimi in this film at all I think a little bit from the, you know, it, it has some pretty extreme camera movement. Uh, it doesn't have really the humor that you would expect from a yeah. movie film. Like, it, it is not a humorous film, almost at all. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, I think the stylishness of it leans towards Raimi. Yeah. Just leans there. Not, it, doesn't, it doesn't go fully into that sort of 
the, the kinetic camera work and stuff you'd expect in a Raimi film. Right, right. Super extreme close-ups and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, the clock on the wall says it's exactly one hour, which means it's time for us to bring it to an end. Thanks again for watching. Be sure to check out our uh, Facebook page, our Twitter page, bookmark our website, subscribe to the podcast. We really want to hear from you, and we hope you are enjoying uh, the show. So we will see you next week at The Blackest Eyes on behalf of Scott and Danny. Stay scared out there. Be careful. See you next time.